welcome friends to another episode of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. So excited uh, for today because we get a chance to talk with Dr. Deborah Egerton and uh, learn from her and hear about her work, her written work, her teaching work, and she's always working, (laughs) all the things she's doing. So she's, uh, she is, uh, joining us from a hotel room in the midst of a very hectic travel schedule. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And hopefully this can be a little bit of a respite from your travel chaos. Thank you so much. And I'm really happy to be with you. <laughs> and you've been up for, you said, 24 hours. Is that 24 correct? 24 hours. Left the hotel in Raleigh oh at uh, 4.30 yesterday morning. And got to the hotel here in Miami about three in the morning. And yeah, it was like, you know, I knew I had to meet with you guys. And I said, no, I think I'll just, <laughs> if I fall asleep, it'll just never happen. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if we hear snoring wow. during this recording, we yeah, just shouldn't true. take it personally, yeah, right? But- no, don't take it personally. Yeah, and and it's a podcast, so you won't see me drool. You know, <laughs> right, right. That's fair. When was when was the last time you pulled an all nighter? Oh, about two weeks ago. Wow. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Impressive. So you're yeah. you're well practiced. I'm Impressive. well practiced. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we were just wondering. We were kind of thinking about a fun way to break the ice with you, and. Uh, I would just love to know, when is the last time that you really had a good belly laugh? Yesterday. <laughs> the process. Amazing! The process of trying. Well, just think about it. We were in Raleigh, North Carolina for a, an event. Um, it's the, it was the 50th anniversary of my husband's fraternity being online mm. at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and it was a big event because his fraternity is um, Omega Sci Fi. It's a black fraternity. And, you know, just imagine 50 years ago when that chapter first went online. I mean, wow, yeah. It was a yeah. big deal. And so to see all of these amazing black men and what they've Mm. done with their lives and how they have kept Mm. this line going, how they've kept the, Mm -hmm. the, um, the fraternity alive on what was, you know, pretty much an all white campus when they started out. So it was really, um, it was something that just filled my heart. And there were lots of great laughs because of course I got to see pictures of him 50 years ago on campus, you know, <laughs> Fun. With the big yeah. hair and the whole bit. But the belly laughs yesterday just came from Charlotte is only two hours by car from Raleigh. We could have driven in, in all the time that it took for us to get there and then to go on and try to get to Miami. It was just crazy. So all you can do, wow. you have two choices. You can laugh. Or you can, you know, crawl up into a little ball and just sob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. So, oh, my goodness. I, I chose laughter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, I, I know those all too well. It's just yeah. anger that turns into laughter. It's, it's kind of the best stuff. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, wow. So you, you travel a lot. Can you, I was just looking over your bio before we got on, and 
there's a long list of things, a lot of roles and positions and the things that you've done in your life. Can you just highlight a few that have been most um, meaningful to you? Uh, a few. So many of them have been have meant a lot to me. Um, mm-hmm. I do wear a lot of hats, so to speak. And uh, in my my lifetime, you know, there's been a recurring uh, theme, or as we call it, the golden thread that's run through my life. And it is that I have always gravitated towards doing what I could, working with communities and people, individuals who are marginalized or pushed to the, you know, the very edges of society. Uh, One of the things that I think back on uh, that I did so many years ago was um, starting a runaway shelter in El Paso, Mm -hmm. Texas. Uh, Hmm. That was, you know, how that all came together was obviously work of the divine. But, uh, you know, in El Paso, that's a pretty uh, far place to get to if you're running away and if there's nothing to stop you from crossing the border or no mm. place that you can go you know it's a, it's a place where we lose people and uh, when mm. I went there so many years ago that troubled me greatly so uh, I still think of that with a great deal of warmth in my heart and I would say also my position um, as a uh, a therapist at State University of New York at New Pulse, um, where I had the all the students of color and the international students. Those were my 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 caseload, uh, and just being able to provide a safe space for them, you know. So very often, mm-hmm. some of the international students or some of what were then called inner city kids would come in, and it was culture shock, and they would struggle. And being able to be there for them, that's another highlight of my life. Uh, just the work that I've done really around the world where I could be there for people. And, of course, seven grandchildren. So <laughs> hey, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a big highlight. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah that's, that's some great. big work. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And you had a book come out. Last fall. I did. I did. I did. Tell us about that a little bit. Give us a little insight into the book. And then we'll, we'll obviously ask questions that get into the content, but just give us a taste of what the book's about. Sure. Uh, The book is called No Justice, No Peace, but spelled K-N-O-W, Justice, K-N-O-W, Peace. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the concept is that we can do something not only about racism, which is one of the things that I feel that all things spring from. It's mm-hmm. like racism is that really ugly seed that got planted. And people learned how to, to other people or push them to the margins of society and treat them as less than because the, uh, the, the seed of racism has been so very successful and prolific it just you know it goes on and on and on but if we do our own inner work which the enneagram is absolutely phenomenal at helping people to understand how to do their own inner work we can find the gift that we have that allows us 
to not only look at the way that we other people, because everyone does it to somebody, uh, Mm -hmm. and to see how we can show up and get out of that passive space. Um, I believe that there are more good people in the world than we can ever possibly imagine. Mm. The challenge is getting the good people to speak up. Um, You know, the people who have the negative voices are not shy and will put that, you know, that negative vitriol out into the airwaves and say whatever they want to say. But people who have a heart for one another and who understand that we are all connected, then we need to learn how to speak up and let our voices be heard. Because the only thing that can fight racism and othering in all its ugly forms is the power of love. Mm. And we have to use that. We have to use that. We have to be that in order to make those changes. Yes. Love warriors. Mm. Yes. Love warriors. Exactly. I love that language (laughs) in your book. It really (laughs) speaks to me deeply. Yeah. Uh, The language part is important. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot with language in the book because I feel very strongly that sometimes you can be, uh, air quotes, right uh, and alienate, or you can take the time to unpack a subject, a topic, or language so that you can bring people along to a place where they can understand the true intention of your words. Mm. And when we start getting into the language of white privilege and white supremacy, you know, I, I will, I've lost people mm-hmm. before I've even gotten an opportunity to say, mm-hmm. Let me give you an alternate perspective on this. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I use language like uh, automatic advantage um, to show how automatic advantage is connected to white privilege, but in a way where people can understand if you're born with white skin, you have an automatic advantage over people of color because we're easily identifiable and therefore that often puts the target on our backs. But if I say you're born with white privilege, uh, then what you hear is I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I never worked a day in my life for anything that I have. And so it requires a deeper discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, yeah, We're already great. into it. I love it so much. <laughs> we are. Yes. So maybe, and, and we're going to keep getting into it, but maybe if, if we could zoom out just a little bit, because you are well-established in the Enneagram community. And we were talking before we you know hit record, you, you mentioned that the Enneagram is a, is a truly global community. But I am curious um, if you could speak to, you know, your perspective as a black woman in the Enneagram space. I know that's a big question, but I'm just curious if you could give us some glimpses into, um, because I think it's easy for probably a lot of our listeners. We, I mean, we have listeners from all over, but you know, our dominant listener base is based in the U S and it seems like the, the surge of Enneagram popularity is predominantly white, at least in a lot of spaces. So I'm curious as to your perspective and experience being a black woman in the Enneagram space. Uh, 
First of all, uh, what I can tell you is that because I've been on this path, being a first is not unfamiliar for me. Um, sure. I was a first black person in more spaces than I can count. Uh, and what I can say about the Enneagram community is that when I entered, uh, there had probably been some other, you know, people of color, particularly globally people of color, but in terms of, say, African Americans here in the United States, I didn't see any, I didn't know any, and I would go to the conferences and repeatedly I would show up as that black woman um, who I think in some cases people didn't even recognize me as such because when they look at me, I'm sort of racially ambiguous looking. Um, black people know that I'm black, but sometimes white people don't. And, you know, that's just a whole, that's a whole different topic. But sure. it was really... Um, it was not uncomfortable for me because I grew up in New York City. I went to Catholic school. I, you know, I started modeling when I was a kid and I was one of the I was one of the first black kids and then stayed in that field for a while. I was not uncomfortable. I've never been uncomfortable being in spaces with white people because I know how to code switch. I know how mm -hmm. to show up in spaces and still be uh, a part of what's going on. And at the same time, the loneliness, mm -hmm. uh, the loneliness is something that you learn to just deal with. You, you deal with it because you're not, or for me, I was not going to not allow myself access to something that would let me grow and learn because it was an all-white environment. Mm. But there was a critical point in time where it really became very evident to me that something needed to change. And that was after the death of the murder of Philandro Castile. Mm -hmm. uh, we were at a conference in Minneapolis, and yeah. I was just, I was just heartbroken having seen that footage right before I left. And um, I thought that we might take a moment of silence, or you know, just recognize that this horrible thing had happened. It was very close to the convention center where we, the hotel where we were, and uh, it didn't happen. And all of a sudden, the whiteness of the Enneagram community and the loneliness of my grief-stricken heart at that moment combined. It wow. was, wow, you know, um, this is something that I see, I hear, and I grieve on a regular basis. And I come into this community to a certain extent for a holding, you know, for a connection, mm -hmm. uh, to be with people that, that share the concept of we are all connected, we are all one. But I realized that I didn't feel connected. I didn't feel held. I didn't feel 
like we were all one. And that was really hard. Um, and that was when I decided something has to be done. We have to start bringing more people of color, uh, more African-Americans, uh, and, and particularly African-Americans, because there is so much that the Enneagram can do to help heal the wounds that we have carried since the time of slavery. Mm. And um, people get upset sometimes when they hear me say that, you know, slavery, why don't you just get over it? Well, no, Mm. we can't just get over it. It doesn't work that way, you know. Um, Mm. And so I'm very outspoken about the reality of how we all have some healing to do from that atrocity. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and, and I imagine it hasn't been, I mean, you, you mentioned having to deal with, with loneliness, um, a lot in, in the community. I'm curious if, if there are other people of color that are listening, that are part of the Enneagram community, what would you, how would you speak to them? Like maybe, are they working through different things and what maybe you had to work through? What is it that they're dealing with that you didn't have to deal with or vice versa? I believe that where we are now in 2023, there are more people of color and more Mm -hmm. African-Americans who uh, are coming into the Enneagram community. Um, And I can say that with a lot of joy in my heart. Um, I've seen an expansion. I'm on the board of the um, International Enneagram Association, and we have worked together to try to become much more inclusive and to open those doors. So one of the first things I would say is walk through the door. Um, Get on board. Uh, if you're if you're feeling lost or alone, uh, I'm not the only black person out there that you can reach out to, and it's easy to find me. You know, <laughs> DebraEgerton.com. You can't get much easier than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there there are many more of us working out in the Enneagram community that people can connect to, and don't. St- Stand alone in that loneliness. Reach out. Uh, Let us know that you're there, that you're studying the Enneagram, that you're learning about the Enneagram, and trust that one of us will take your hand and guide you, you know, through and into this community. Because I can't say this. Remember, I started out by saying that I believe there are more good people in the world than we are aware of. And I have met so many amazing people with great big hearts in the Enneagram community who have reached out to me and said, thank you. We're so glad you're doing this. What I also want them to say is, now what can I do to help? Uh, you know, so not thank you and good luck, Deborah, but thank you and what can I do to help? That's important. But for the people who are experiencing that loneliness, you don't have to. Um, we're here for you and we are 
opening the doors and we are creating fertile ground and really uh, positive conditions for you to be a part of the Enneagram community. And uh, I, I have a, a what I call, I don't call um, <laughs> uh, DEI work that anymore. I call it idea work because it's inclusion, diversity, uh, equity, and anti-racism. So it's time for a new idea. We need to be working on that. Uh, and I have a class where people can go through and they can get certified so that they can be able to actually do this work. Uh, that's a wonderful community where we work together, um, you know, black, white, Asian, Latino, whatever it is, we come together and we work through the challenges of othering and how to work well with it. But we use the Enneagram as our roadmap to do the work. And so there's a lot of different ways that people can actually enter the community and not feel alone. And I feel really good about that. So, yeah, we're, we're here. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like I can just feel your big heart, like, <laughs> through <laughs> the screen. I can just feel your capacity to hold people and to hold them well with, with all their complexity. And I think that you fit so well into the season and what we're, what we're trying to explore with season four on Fathoms because – our theme is dynamics of personhood. And what we were really trying to do is uncover these layers and these complexities of our humanity and curiously engage um, the nuances within ourselves and with others. And so what you share in your book, and I'm, I'm just kind of looking at it right now, this humanity mosaic um, and this graphic, this feels like my brain. It's like, this is what... I feel like there's so much happening inside of me as a person. And so I love that that you're taking the time to explore all these complexities. Could you talk to us about what this is, this humanity mosaic, and why you feel that it's important for not, not just Enneagram work, but really moving forward together? Absolutely. <clears throat> One of the things that um, I grew up sort of pushing against and resisting was this concept of uh, particularly our country being a melting pot. And the imagery of a melting pot, even from childhood, hearing about an elementary school, was just not good imagery for me. Um, you know, you, you come to, to a country and you just all jump into this pot and you all become the same. And, you know, if we all jump in and somebody stirs us up. That's going to be a really messy looking soup, you know, not particularly appealing. Right. And <laughs> I, I began to think about that and I thought, we're not a melting pot. We're a mosaic. We're a mosaic mm -hmm. because more and more as the generations, you know, evolve, what I'm seeing is how we all want to be able to stand in our own authentic, beautiful power mm -hmm. and not have to force ourselves to fit in yes. uh, or lose part of who we are in order to fit into 
the world. Mm -hmm. Let me be me mm -hmm. and I'll make you yeah. better. You be you and you'll make me better. But if we're constantly uh, just sort of trying to be some version of ourselves, and I and I have a I have an aversion to the concept of people being versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. Don't be a version of yourself. Be your authentic self. That's where your gifts mm -hmm. are. Your gifts are in what you were God given, and. What the Enneagram does, of course, is it helps you to uncover it and not be afraid to use it and to understand it. The um, humanity mosaic is when we begin to look at how we tend to judge one another based on dimensions of our diversity that we did not get to choose. So, you know, if you think about um, how people will isolate and, you know, ostracize you based on your race, your, you know, your sexual orientation, your ability or disability, um, your gender. I mean, all of these things that we didn't stand on a line and say, uh, you know, excuse me, God, um, I, I don't really want to be born in, I don't want to be born in the 60s. I'd mm -hmm. rather be born in the 90s. I mean, we didn't get to make those choices, but we treat people differently based on the package that they did not create. And then that package has everything to do with what happens in the next ring around, you know, your dimensions of diversity. It has everything to do with where whether or not you're going to be born to a family that speaks more than one language or whether or not the socioeconomic level of the people that you were born into uh, can afford a certain type of quality education, whether or not you're going to have certain health issues because something runs in your family. And then depending upon that, <clears throat> we begin to look at the way that you begin to get some of the advantages in life. You know, if your parents are connected, then you kind of get to be connected. Um, if your parents were wealthy, you get to go to better schools and all of these things. And I can go through so many of them as you see them there. But the one that is really important to me is to look at when you were born. And what was going on during the period of time that you were born? You know, um, I was born while the civil rights movement was, you know, beginning to ramp up. I was born in time to benefit from the civil rights movement. I look at uh, the, the pop culture and living in New York City and the access that I had to all kinds of music and people. And uh, so there was no, I don't have that fear of entering into any space because I grew up in spaces where that was normal. So, you know, when I have people look at the humanity mosaic and take the deep dive and look at the things that are important to them, but then Look at the things that are not important to you at all. 
then you begin to identify your blind spots. Then you begin to understand how you can have disconnects with people because this is precious to them. And the things that you value from your mosaic that mean so much to you, the things that they value mean just as much to them. And you don't have to have the same mosaic, but you just have to understand that the that things that are being held with love and with such a strength of this is who I am, it may be different, but value is value. And learning how to understand each other across different values. And that's powerful work. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, you've already spoken to this a little bit. When it comes to dynamics of personhood, we kind of filtered it down to rough um, categories of individuality, mutuality, and unity. And so you've talked a little bit about this individuality of your mosaic, your just how beautiful um, all the different layers of you are. And you're talking a little bit now about how we relate to one another. How best do we hold the tension of loving who we are and all of our labels and identities but also not gripping them so tight that it begins to separate us from the whole. Right. I really love that question because that's where the inner work comes in. The reason that we grip what we value or what's important to us so tightly is because we're following an egoic agenda when we do that. You know, it's like, uh, this is mine, and there's a you know a little voice in your head, and I always say it can be particularly ignorant, but it has no shortage <laughs> of opinions about what you need to value and who you yeah. are and what's important, you know. And so, if you listen to that, you do have that tight grip. It's like there's not enough for everybody, so make sure you get yours mm. because. It's going to run out, you know, and, and you're going to be left with nothing. That's the individual way of viewing things. Um, and it is selfish and it is selfish by nature, but we think it is survival. Okay. But true survival is where we find, you know, the mutuality of understanding that there is no place where I begin and you end. What happens to me happens to you. There is a, a thread, and, you know, uh, like I said, we call it the golden thread that runs through each one of us. And at the end of that, we connect to one another. It's so fascinating for me now, and I, I like to use examples that people can understand, that part of my work has become actually counseling white parents mm. who have white children who have grown up and are now angry with them. Mm. And they're angry because their parents never taught them about racism. Yeah. And they've gone out into a world 
where they feel totally unprepared for what they're seeing and hearing and experiencing. And now coming back home and saying, so mom, dad, what were you racist? Why did you never, ever, ever bring up this topic when we were growing up? Why did we go to, and I, and I, I, I uh, have picked up this expression from the British, they call it, why, why, did, why would you send your child to a same face school? Mm. So <laughs> children are coming back and saying, you know, like I said, I encountered this uh, when I was in the UK. Why would you send us to a same face school? Why, why did you not um, allow us or expose us to what young people are looking at now and saying the real world? So mm. the connection is there. And we eventually, in some way, shape, or form, get held accountable for that connection. So, like I said, ironic as it may be, I'm working with white parents and their grown children to try to help them understand, well, you know, it's not that mom and dad were racist. It's just that we were in their blind spot. Our experience was not their experience. But you have an opportunity as young adults now to understand other people's experiences and don't waste your energy on blaming your parents. That will get you nowhere. Just move forward and live a little differently and educate your parents <laughs> as you go. <laughs> mm. What I'm hearing is a lot of your work is just about deeply humanizing people yes. in front of you. Yes. And I'm curious, with, with the humanity mosaic in mind, can you speak to us a little bit about this platinum rule you talk about and its role in continuing to humanize each other? I always laugh when I talk about the platinum rule. because one of the ways that I get people to understand it is by talking about our credit cards. You know, when we first got gold credit cards, we thought we were cool. And then we discovered that our friends had a platinum <laughs> card. And then we felt, you know, <laughs> like, oh, gosh, now I got to get the platinum card. Um, yeah. It's heavier. It, it's heavier. You know, you put that sucker <laughs> down, people are going to look up. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the golden rule, which most of us uh, were taught pretty ubiquitously, uh, is, you know, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat other people the same way that you want to be treated. But that that sometimes works in a monolithic culture. Uh, but when you think about diversity and you think about uh, people who didn't grow up exactly the same way that you did, didn't have the exact same spirit experiences that you had. We have to expand on that golden rule and switch to the platinum rule, which says to treat other people the way that they want to be treated. And it's subtle, but it's so powerful. If you go around treating everyone the way that you want to be treated, particularly across um, the different lines of diversity, you can make some huge right. mistakes. 
and you can actually do more harm than good. A good example of that uh, is sometimes I would work with uh, schools, particularly these um, smaller, all-white schools who were trying very hard to create a more inclusive environment, wanted to actually get some, you know, students of color into those schools. But think about this. Wealthy white kids, middle class or lower middle class black kids, now going to these wealthy white schools, of course, wanting to go for the opportunity to get a better education. But then there's a socialization that goes on, okay? There's the birthday parties, you know, and there's the, the uh, you know, maybe coming out celebration or the bar mitzvahs or whatever might be going on that, you know, young people would be engaging in. And then you, you, you try to bring these children together, inviting them because you are treating them the same way you would want to be treated. You would want to be invited. But these students sometimes are totally unprepared to be able to go into those environments and then sometimes end up being ridiculed because of the way they're dressed or because they don't know exactly what they're walking into, whereas it's natural for these kids because they all grew up together. And so the platinum rule shows you how you have to go to a deeper level of people's mm-hmm. humanity and get to really understand mm-hmm. them to the point where you understand that some of the things that you may be doing to try to say we're all the same is BS. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have different experiences and we've got mm-hmm. to recognize that that is just a reality. We have to take the time to access our own humanity enough to see where there may be some equity that has to be Mm -hmm. created before we can get to Mm -hmm. equality. And that's the big step that people skip Mm -hmm. over. So the platinum rule has a lot to do with getting much more real about our connections, taking the time to get to know people, uh, looking at where we have to fill in some of the potholes because there's no equitable ground that we can stand on, and then ultimately to begin to look at the world through the eyes of someone who has a different lens and to be willing to understand it. That's a lot more complex than just treating somebody the way you want to be treated, who Mm -hmm. is in no position to be able to really accept being treated the way you want to be treated because it's entirely out of context. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love, I love it too, because yeah, the golden rule, it doesn't require me to listen to anyone but myself really, but the platinum rule requires that I keep returning to you and hearing from you and, and be quiet. Yeah. 
So I can hear you. And I love that you mentioned time. Time is involved in that. I can reflect and go, I still don't understand. I have to go back. I have to listen more. Try again. You know, I love it. It's an investment. It's an investment of Mm -hmm. time and of your own humanity. And that's what's really important. Um, I share with people all the time, and this is a really important thing. Be mindful of levels of relationship. Who can you learn from? Who can you ask questions of in an affirmingly inquisitive way without being offensive? You know, you don't walk up to someone that you're just meeting for the first time and start grilling them (laughs) (laughs) about, you know, their differences. (laughs) Yeah. But people do that, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're really going to respect and honor one another's humanity, we're going to get to know each other. Like I said, it's an investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering if you could give us an example of a well-intentioned but counterproductive application of the golden rule. And, you know, say, I think most of the time that this would happen, at least in our, our my context, would be as a white person, you know, trying... Mm-hmm to want to uh, be helpful and supportive of someone else. What would be an example that you've seen of a golden rule application that is well-intentioned but counterproductive, as you described? Oh, my heavens, they happen all the time. So just this weekend, we were having dinner. There were eight of us, four black couples, and we were hadn't seen each other in a while. So we were, you know, deep in conversation with each other at a dinner table. And it's so funny because this happens frequently. Uh, A white couple came over to the table and, you know, they said, oh, you all are just having entirely too much fun. And um, we just noticed you're having such a wonderful time. And they stayed there And they lingered, and it was awkward because they didn't know us. We didn't know them. And they're telling us about, um, you know, their cousin who married someone who was black. And, um, you know, they noticed that it just got so awkward and so (laughs) uncomfortable. I'm cringing for them. Yes, and and we're sort of all sitting there like, is this ever going to end? And, you know, I know that this was kind of golden rule behavior. You know, I'm going to go over, I'm going to have a conversation, going to let these black people know uh, that, you know, we see them and uh, that, you know, we know other black people too. And I was like, oh, please stop. (laughs) Please stop. Please stop. Um, you know, whereas, it, you know, if, if it had been white people and they had walked up and started having that conversation, um, mm. it might have been just a natural conversation. But this was a forced kind of, you know, we want to let you know that we're kind of cool and we're OK with you being here. And we know some black people, too. And yeah, mm. just just awkward and uncomfortable you know Mm. the platinum rule would have been notice you all are having a really good time great to see you 
hope you're celebrating something and keep it keep it moving. You don't know <laughs> us, yeah. you know. You yeah. Don't pull up your chair and sit down in the middle of you know our conversation. Um, and that's why I say the platinum rule teaches you quite a bit about learning to understand what I call level of relationship. You know, you need some diversity in your world so that you can learn. I don't believe that we should all just separate out. There are some things that um, as white people, it's important to learn your history. There's some things that you need to unlearn and relearn. And that takes, you know, that takes that takes heart um, because mm. it's a hard journey. But as you learn, it's also important to have some people in your environment that you can say, I'm struggling with this. Mm-hmm. Can we have a conversation about it? As I explain to people all the time, white people going their own way, black people going their own way, and then we try to come back together, we're going to get another form of colonial colonization, and mm-hmm. we don't need any more of that, you know? Yeah. Um, we need to... We need to heal because as black people and the descendants of slavery, we have wounds that have not even begun to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But what people forget is that you cannot be a descendant of the people who inflicted those wounds and not have wounding that you have carried forward as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it takes work on both sides. We need to heal and come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So we were wondering if if you could offer us some wisdom, Dr. Egerton. I, I want to call you Dr. E. I don't know if that feels too familiar or not. but I- No. <laughs> That's that's what it ends up being. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> you can feel free to tell me that I'm not allowed to call you that if you want. No, um, you certainly are. <laughs> so one thing that we've kind of been talking about as a team is that we really want to honor people in our lives by challenging them to grow. But sometimes it feels like when you're trying to be sensitive to another person, there's this assumed frailty that can come across. So we were wondering if you could just offer us some wisdom on how we can both, you know, be challengers of growth, be sensitive to what other people are experiencing and and how they're different from us, but not assume that they're too fragile and have to hold them like, you know, they're glass and they're going to break if we're not direct and, and, and brave. Does that question make sense? Right. Yes, it does. Um, you know, when we, when we are trying to bring people along, one of the first things that I would tell you is creating an environment where it gets angry and then turns toxic is something that you want to avoid. Mm. Um, you know, Martin Luther King said it best, you know, we, the only power that can drive out the darkness is love. You know, it takes the, the light of love to be able to go into spaces where people are not necessarily willing recipients 
nor do they have any interest in really, you know, sort of coming out of their own mindset. Now, with the Enneagram, there's something that we teach, which is about the alignment of our centers of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that I would say is that in any conversation with someone that you want to sort of bring along is to make make sure that your centers of intelligence are aligned. Mm. Make sure that you are in your body. Mm. That way you can take a stand and not just a position. Taking a stand allows you to be solid, right? So your body and your the intuitive wisdom of your gut will kick in as to even whether or not this is the right time to have that conversation. Mm. Then you check in with your heart and make sure that your heart is online, that you are actually experiencing um, love for that person. You know, it's a, it's a sense of, I, I want to talk to you because I really care about you. Um, and not, I just want to argue with you because I think you're wrong. Right there, that's going to go in the, in the in, mm. it's going to go sideways. And then the next place that you go is you check in with the wisdom of your own head. You know, you be intentional with your words. Mm-hmm. When I'm having conversations with people about this and I want to help to move them to a kinder, gentler space, then I make sure that I am kind and gentle in the process of doing it. Uh, There's a process that we call mirroring, you know, where you actually begin to speak Mm -hmm. like the other person and people will pick it up and begin to do it because it's sort of an automatic thing that will happen over time. But you speak slowly, intentionally, kindly. You make sure that you don't get triggered and become angry the angry brain and the rational brain cannot operate at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you have to be grounded in your body. Your heart has to be open and your mind has to be willing to be challenged, but to stay in a state of grace, in a state of loving kindness and recognize that you don't have to bring someone along all in one day. Mm -hmm. Just let them see how you keep showing up consistently with loving kindness and that you're not rejecting them. A lot of this is happening in families. You know, we're rejecting a particular family member because, you know, who they voted for or, you know, who their friends are. But if you are consistent, if you remain in the space of open loving kindness towards them. It may take a very long time, but remember the only way that we really bring people over is if they make an internal shift. The internal shift only comes where love is allowed to grow. Mm. Mm. Wow. I, I think f- final question here and you mentioned earlier in the podcast um, how people often say thank you, but you're looking for thank you and what can I do to help? <laughs> and I think as we were talking through certain things in your book, um, it struck me that 
you name different centers of intelligence as bridge builders, healers, and defenders. And it struck me how those could be roles that we can play to embody these roles in a quest for justice. Can you speak to those roles and, and perhaps how different people show up differently in, in trying to bring justice? Right. Uh, you know, it's important to know, and I, I talk about the Enneagram more as points and energy than as types, primarily because sometimes when people hear types, particularly people new to the Enneagram, you know, there's this wall that goes up, you know, I'm not a type, I don't want to be in a box. But the nine points of the Enneagram, each of them houses a certain energy and a very powerful energy. And within each of us, one of those energies leads. And if you know what center your point happens to reside in, then you can recognize that you're either a defender, a bridge builder, uh, you know, or a healer. So um, when you look at eight, nine, and one, these are defenders. You know, these are people who, uh, by the very strength of their being sort of in that body center, they're going to take action, but in three very different ways, because eight, nine, and one are three points that have challenges with anger. So it's the channeling of that anger to be able to evolve into a defender, because once you channel anger, then you have a certain strength or passion that you can really step out into the world with and be that person who can um, some, you know, eights, nines, or ones are the ones that, you know, really uh, will do the protesting. Um, some of them will actually be people who mediate um, when things are getting a little bit, you know, out of control. And so the eight Eights might be more prone to the, you know, wanting to get out there and actually be in it, be in, in it really in the mix of things. The nines might want to mediate the conflict, which they're brilliant at, even though they don't like conflict, but they're brilliant mediators. And then the ones are going to be the people who are, we're going to do the right thing. You know, we're going we're to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else ever again. And so let's see how we can put together some sort of activism that's not just what I call a flurry of activism, but a sustained effort um, where we can actually move things forward. So these are the body types, and they are very much defenders of the work. Then you go up into the heart space, and we've got the two, three, and four, and these are healers. You know, twos are going to be there for you. What do you need and how soon do you need it and how can I help? How can I, I get more? How can I help from twos than really from any other type other than sevens? That's a different story. We'll get to that. Uh, so twos are in it with you and I call them the angels at the gate. They're going to be your companion within the system of trying to um, be of assistance in any possible way that they can. 
threes are healers because when the obstacles arise, threes are, their superpower is being able to figure out how to actually get around that obstacle or move it out of the way. The effort is not going to fail. The three is going to make sure that whatever is going on, we're going to be able to see this through. We're not going to let this patient, which is the work that we're doing, bleed out. It's not going to happen. You know, we're going to we're going to apply the band-aids and we're going to we're going to stitch up whatever stitches we need to take, but we're going to make sure that this is sustainable. And then the fours, the empathy. You know, just at times when you don't want anyone to tell you how to fix anything or how to continue moving forward. You just want to sit down and take a rest because the work is exhausting. To have a four sit with you without words and you don't have to explain where you are or how you're feeling, a four will just stay with you in that space until you're ready to come back out again. And so this is the way the two, three, and four show up as healers. But then our five, six, and sevens, the head types, you know, five see things very differently from the other points. So it's like the big picture, you know, lights up, um, just like uh, in uh, A Beautiful Mind, you know, when uh, Russell Crowe stood in front of that, you know, <laughs> that, that map and you could see all these mm. connections that were being made. I think of five's minds like that. And when a five gets in it with you, I have a couple of fives that are in the work with me, Russ Hudson being the, the most obvious one. Uh, there are things that they will put together and information that they bring into whatever you're trying to do that just makes it better. And then the sixes, the way that the plans get made, making sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed, that we are on point people in terms of what we're trying to move forward here. And then the sevens, God love the sevens, because when at the end of the day, you really feel like, it's not happening fast enough. You know, it's just not happening fast enough. A seven will be there to say, hey, we're, we're doing something here that's good, and we need to continue. And by mm -hmm. the way, that's a funny-looking pair of shoes you've got on today. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, that's, that's a very kind of superficial and very sure. quick sort of um, description of, how the defenders and the bridge builders and the healers kind of come together. But mm -hmm. it's for each Enneagram human to find their point and to find their superpower and their gift and to activate and to do what we can together to heal humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's it's also important to note that regardless of type, we can all be bridge builders, healers, and defenders. Absolutely. We just may be slightly more gifted in one or the other. Correct. Because we have yeah. all nine of those energies within us. There you know, is. so we yeah. can we can slide. We can go mm -hmm. around that Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, and we all have a head, heart, and gut. That's right. That is right. Yeah, yeah is. I've actually created an Enneagram dance. <laughs> an Enneagram line <laughs> dance so we can go around to all the points. <laughs> Perfect. I want to learn it. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to figure out what the venue, maybe um, I'm doing the keynote for the IEA, so maybe I'll actually uh, shock them and I'll start out with yes. my Enneagram line dance, make everybody yes. get up Gosh. and do it. <laughs> that would be I amazing. I will wait for the party for that. <laughs> there it is. That would be the most memorable part of the whole event. I love it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been so delightful and I've just so enjoyed your wisdom and your vulnerability. And thank you for allowing us to witness your story and just to share with you today. How can people learn more about you, connect with you and find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs. So um, it's DeborahEgerton.com. And it's Deborah, spelled the biblical way, D-E-B-O-R-A-H. Uh, and Egerton is E-G-E-R-T-O-N. People are always trying to put two Gs or a D in there somehow. <laughs> don't do it, people. Uh, don't do it. And when you click on that, I come up as the matriarch, the mentor, and the mystic. And there's oh. all kinds of good stuff. There's an Enneagram quiz on the um, on my website that people can take, um, you know, for free. And the nice thing about the quiz is I tell people all the time, that's not really the way to find your Enneagram point. However, mm-hmm. it might set you, you know, it might eliminate some things for you. It might help you to, to begin the search. Uh, of course, there is the book. One of the things that I do tell people, if you read the book, review it. Um, mm. Because people look at reviews, and the more reviews that you actually get, the more people are prone to pick it up and say, wow, you know, it's got good reviews. I will I will read it. Um, so I want people to read the book because it's written for everyone. You know, it's not geared towards... Um, just black people or just white people. Um, it's geared towards all of humanity for us to all look at how we can look at what it looks like if we are actively othering people, what mm-hmm. it looks like if we are passively othering. And that's where most of humanity sits in the passive othering. But of course, how we land in advocacy and come out and really make a difference in the world. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And we'll have all those links in the show notes for our audience to check out. And um, we're still deciding if we're going to be at IEA Global or not. But hopefully, if we're there, we'd, we'd be able to, I'd love to see you.